Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast contains graphic content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. True North True Crime is produced on the territories of the Coast Salish people. We hear the words on the nightly news. Gang conflict. Gang-related. High-risk lifestyle. Drug trade. Those words are used to define victims of violence, to explain what happened in the briefest possible ways, to assure us that it can't happen to us. But behind each one of those headlines is a person, a victim, with a full life lived long before the incident that took their lives. These are our relatives, our friends, and neighbors. Behind each of these headlines is a family searching for answers. On the evening of October 17, 2002, a young man reached into his car to grab a CD. Moments later, gunshots pierced the night air. The man lay on the ground fighting for his life. He did not survive. He was just 21 years old. Tonight, we present the unsolved murder of Travis Cope. And you are listening to True North True Crime. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to True North True Crime. Thanks for joining us. We are an independent Canadian podcast, and we're just a two-person team producing these episodes with the main goal of raising awareness for these cases. If you have a suggestion, please reach out to us at truenorthtruecrime at gmail.com, and we always prioritize cases that come to us directly from families or close contacts of those cases. So if you have a case that needs attention, please let us know. You can follow us on Instagram at TNTCPod, and if you're feeling generous with your words, you can write us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, or simply subscribe and follow us on your podcast platform of choice. It helps a lot. We also have a Patreon subscription for just $5 a month, and you can find more information about that by following the link in our show notes. Okay, let's get into tonight's episode. So tonight we are talking about the unsolved murder of 21-year-old Travis Cope. That's K-O-P-E. Travis was gunned down on an Edmonton street in 2002. While the Edmonton police feel confident that they know who committed the murder, there have been no charges in this case. We put this episode together using publicly available news articles. We also spoke at length with Travis's mother, Lorraine. Lorraine was able to provide us with crucial documents, recorded detective interviews, as well as information from friends and family. Her help on this episode was crucial for us, and we are grateful that she has trusted us with her story. 
As an additional content warning, this episode deals with gun violence. Travis Brett Cope was born in Camrose, Alberta, September 21, 1981. At the time, he had a sister that was one and a half years older than him, and Travis's father and his mom, Lorraine, were married pretty young. They moved to the town of Tofield after Travis was born. A few months later, his parents were able to buy a mobile home that they moved onto Lorraine's parents' farm. This farm was just outside of Tofield. Unfortunately, the marriage did not last, and shortly after they moved to Lorraine's family farm, the couple separated. Travis was still less than one year old at the time of the separation. Travis's dad was never in his or his sister's life after that. According to Lorraine, he would make plans to visit and then not show up. This was obviously a source of pain for the kids that hurt them over and over again. Lorraine states that it was sad to see how much it broke their hearts. However, Travis's father's family, namely the grandparents, were always there and were involved in the kids' lives. In 1985, the kids and Lorraine moved back to Tofield, Alberta. So for those unaware, Tofield is a town in central Alberta, Canada. It's located approximately 668 kilometers east of Edmonton. And according to the Canadian census, Tofield has a population of about 2,000 people. The economic base of uh, the Tofield area includes agriculture as well as oil and gas. Historically, Tofield's rolling farmlands supported a vibrant livestock and grain industry. So Tofield is where Travis did all of his schooling. He played hockey and he actually excelled in a class called Humor 101. He liked snowmobiling, fishing, swimming. He was a fun-loving kid and always a bit of a jokester. He always had a huge smile and he always loved hanging out with his friends and family. In October of 1990, the family moved just outside of Tofield with Travis's stepfather, who Lorraine married shortly after they moved. The man she married was a cowboy, a farmer, and worked as an oil field consultant. Travis really took to being in the country. At that time, Travis was playing hockey, which took up a lot of time on the weekends and weekdays. But then he decided he wanted to participate in rodeos, uh, being a junior steer rider. So he also learned the sport of team roping. Um, so he eventually made the tough decision to quit hockey and start doing more cowboy-type sports. The cowboy lifestyle really appealed to young Travis. He started wearing his cowboy hats and boots, Wrangler jeans and western shirts. According to Lorraine, he was a real sharp-dressed cowboy. And eventually, he was sent to a team roping and steer riding school. Sadly, though, at this time, as Travis did this transition from being more of a town kid to a cowboy-type rural kid, um, he quit playing hockey. And as a result of that, he started to get bullied at school by some of the more, like, town kind of kids. It seemed that the bullies at the school didn't like this change in Travis, a couple of times, Lorraine had to go to the hospital to pick Travis up. One time, the school took Travis to the hospital because someone threw him into the lockers and he had fractured ribs. This was in junior high. While there were challenges at school with the other kids, Lorraine and Travis's stepdad helped Travis explore his ranch work interests. Lorraine bought the kids their own calves to raise, and Travis was able to buy his own heading horse. Travis loved this lifestyle and loved to do packing trips into the mountains with horses and pack horses. The family also began running the rodeo circuit. Unfortunately, Travis got hurt pretty badly while steer riding, and so this put him in the hospital for around 10 days with a punctured lung. He quit steer riding after that and then focused his attention on team roping. He was really passionate about it and he hardly ever missed a steer while roping. 
During junior high school, one of his classes focused on what he wanted to do when he finished school, and he was really interested in becoming a conservation officer or game warden. He went with a man a couple of times on a ride-along. He was discouraged when the officer explained to him that there was not a lot of demand for this occupation, so that was pretty disappointing for Travis, and sadly, that was the end of that idea. In 1996, Travis became a big brother and the middle child when Lorraine gave birth to Travis's little sister. In 1997 and 1998, Travis was in high school and some of the kids that had bullied him were befriending him now and wanted to hang out with him. Lorraine thinks at that time Travis was vulnerable and just wanted to fit in somewhere. Being bullied in school and his biological father not really trying to be in his life really hurt Travis. He was left wondering what he did to deserve any of it. And obviously, these are very challenging feelings for adults, let alone children. Thinking back now, Lorraine believes that Travis was so emotionally hurt that he was susceptible and that following whoever took him under their wing was what felt right to him. This is when he started smoking cannabis and losing interest in the things that had once brought him so much joy. He sold his team roping horse and bought a car. He was making some bad choices at this time and started to hang out with kids who previously bullied him. After high school, some of Travis's behaviors created concerns for the family and this led to disagreements. Travis chose to leave the family home and one of his friends had moved to Edmonton at this point, so Travis followed his friend there. During this time, Lorraine is not entirely clear what was going on for Travis. It seemed that things had changed for him quickly. Over the course of what seems like about three years, Travis's life took a tragic turn. So Travis stayed in Edmonton for a bit after leaving Toefield, but then apparently he moved to the Vancouver area, possibly in White Rock. Lorraine did see him a few times during this period, and she felt that he was maybe not in a good place. So a woman who knew Travis in Vancouver shared what she knew with Lorraine. She said that Travis came to Vancouver to make some money selling drugs in the Lower Mainland. She believed that he was there with two other guys, also from Edmonton. But after a year, give or take, Travis realized he didn't really want this life. Apparently, the two other guys weren't really paying him, and Travis wasn't making the money that he was promised. Things were also starting to get dangerous. Other men in the business were starting rumors about ripoffs and putting the blame on Travis. In this world, it is common for people to steal from each other and to point fingers. This behavior can have deadly results. One associate called Travis's girlfriend at the time and said that Travis had stole a lot of money, some drugs, and possibly a car. She told that guy that Travis would never do that, and then she called Travis to tell him what the guy told her. She believes that the guy who called her is actually the person who stole the money, drugs, and car and blamed Travis and set him up. She also believes that that person is now dead. He apparently died a couple of years after that. So after things flamed out in Vancouver, Travis moved back to Edmonton. He was still associating with people in the drug trade, but it's unclear what his role was at the time. So we know that Travis was involved in drugs, but we do not know the quantities, if he was moving big weight or if he was just running street-level quantities. But we do know that Travis does have priors that are related to the drug trade. However, none of those offenses are violent or due to assault or anything like that. So as much as Travis was involved in the drug trade, he was not a member of a known gang or organized crime syndicate. If he was part of any kind of gang, it is not known to law enforcement. 
from outside appearances, this just looks like a group of young men who were trying to make quick money in an incredibly dangerous business. This is obviously misguided, as there are many dangers in the industry. During his return to Edmonton, Travis worked some trades jobs and was looking at a career and lifestyle change-up. In November of 2001, he called Lorraine to come pick him up and to take him back to Toefield. Lorraine arrived at a home in Edmonton of Travis's girlfriend at the time, and Lorraine states that Travis had nothing. She picked him up with basically the clothes on his back and a couple of black garbage bags with whatever personal belongings he had left. He didn't even have enough money to buy a pack of cigarettes. So it's clear at this time Travis did not have any excess money or drugs or the spoils of the drug trade. If he had indeed ripped someone off, where was the money? Over the next year in Toefield, Travis tried to get back into normal life. He was dating a woman who lived in Edmonton, so he would spend time there with her and other friends. While back in Toefield, Travis worked a few jobs. He was a quick study. He took the opportunity to work in various different trades-based fields, and he was known to be hardworking and reliable. For the year he was back in Alberta, his mom said he kind of bounced around a few places. He would go to her sister's farms to help them with their farming operations, and he was looking at trade school to be a welder. Travis really wanted to obtain his B-pressure ticket, and that was his goal. He also wanted to get away from his old life. There were times, however, that he expressed some concerns. He confided in a friend that he needed to get away and maybe take a job at a camp. It was unclear if this was a fear-based response, perhaps because he was concerned for his own safety. So in 2002, it looked like Travis was turning a corner in his life. He was back home, he was working, he had seemingly left the drug business, and he was looking towards his future. But there were still some lingering concerns about his past that were affecting him. Were his previous associates angry that he had left the business? Were they starting rumors about a ripoff? Was he in danger at this time? In October of 2002, it is believed that Travis received a phone call from an investigator with the Edmonton Police Service. The nature and content of the call is not publicly known, but family members and friends believe that Travis was being asked to trade information. He had an upcoming court case for trafficking, so it is possible that he was being maybe offered a deal in return for information. However, this has not been confirmed by law enforcement or the Crown Prosecutor. In the second week of October 2002, Travis shared with friends that he needed to go to Edmonton to attend a court hearing. We have learned that this was not for him. It is unclear if he was going to support someone or if he was going to be a witness. There are no records of Travis being required at a particular trial in the month of October. So we are now going to get into the timeline of the evening of October 17th, 2002. Early in the evening of October 17th, 2002, Travis was in Toefield visiting with friends and family. That evening, he received several phone calls and text messages from a woman. We believe that this was the person he was dating. After repeated calls and texts, Travis made a decision to drive to Edmonton. It's not clear why. Travis hopped into his red Plymouth Sundance and drove around 45 minutes to an hour to Edmonton. This was around 8.30 p.m. 
When Travis arrived in Edmonton, he went to his friend's house near 115th Street and 75th Avenue. This is an area known as Belgravia, which is described as an upscale university area neighborhood. Travis arrived at his friend's home around 9.30 p.m. His friend lived at home with his parents. However, when Travis arrived at the home, his friend's parents weren't there. This was not a house party or anything. This was actually a house that Travis had lived at in the past. He would also use this house to crash at when he was in Edmonton. That evening, it was just Travis and his friend hanging out alone at the house for about 30 or so minutes. The friend's parents arrived home after 10 p.m. Around 10.05 p.m., neighbors witnessed a black or brown Cadillac Escalade parked in a nearby alleyway. At around 10.20 p.m., Travis went outside to his car to retrieve a CD. He stood outside his car alone. He accessed the car by the passenger side door. The parked Escalade lurched from the alley and made its way towards Travis. Witnesses report hearing multiple gunshots. One witness states that it did not sound like a rifle or a shotgun. She stated that it sounded like a small caliber weapon, more like pops than bangs. Travis was struck five times and collapsed beside his car with the door of the Sundance wide open. The Cadillac is then seen hopping a curb and driving away at a high rate of speed. An off-duty firefighter living nearby rushed to the scene. He did his best to attend to Travis's injuries using a piece of fabric to apply pressure to the multiple entrance and exit wounds. Other neighbors quickly ran over as police and first responders arrived in the scene. While first responders transported Travis to the University of Alberta Hospital, police deployed dogs, cruisers, and the Air One police helicopter to track the Escalade. Travis arrived at the ER where emergency doctors tried to save his life. Tragically, at 10.45 p.m., Travis Brett Cope was pronounced dead at just 21 years old. We are now going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. When we return, we will walk through the investigation and a family's 20-year journey to find justice. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So before the break, we outlined the life of Travis Cope. Travis was a young man who grew up in rural Alberta, but perhaps in pursuit of easy money or pressure from those around him, he began working in the drug trade. 
This seemed like a short-lived career, and in recent years, he had left the drug business and began working 9-5 to jobs in the trades. It seemed like he was trying to turn his life around. But on the evening of October 17, 2002, Travis was the victim of a drive-by shooting in an upscale neighborhood in Edmonton. Lorraine, his mother, recalls getting the phone call at 2 in the morning. The police had found his aunt's number in his phone as she had the same last name as Travis. The aunt called Lorraine and told her that something had happened to Travis. Lorraine then traveled to the police station, where she learned that her son Travis had died. She shared with us that she fell out of her chair screaming in grief as this could not possibly be true. The rest of that night and that week for her is a blur and unclear to this day. The autopsy report was finished on October 18, 2002. In the report, it was indicated that Travis died from blood loss due to multiple gunshot wounds. In all, he was struck five times. This included wounds to the chest, arms, neck, abdomen, and face. Whoever did this shooting was intent on murdering Travis. This was not random or a scare tactic. The volume of deadly shots indicate total malice. So who did this? Well, it appears that Edmonton police may have come across the assailants later that night. At approximately 1.17 a.m., a black Cadillac Escalade pulled up in front of Foreplay Nightclub, located on 81st Street. Someone inside of the Escalade fired several gunshots into the nightclub's exterior. One bullet penetrated a window and lodged into an interior wall. The black Escalade was then seen driving away from the club. 20 minutes later, Edmonton police stopped the Escalade in the area of 69th Street and 29th Avenue. A police helicopter hovered above as the police presence increased around the Escalade. The light from the helicopter illuminated the driver's side of the Cadillac. Inside was a 25-year-old male driver. Tactical officers ordered the man out of the vehicle. He walked backwards towards the officers with his hands up and was taken into custody. He was later arrested and questioned in connection to the nightclub shooting. Witnesses at the scene stated the Escalade was connected to a party condo nearby. Then, at approximately 2 a.m. at the University Hospital, investigators were in the emergency room dealing with the aftermath of Travis's murder when two men walked into the hospital with suspicious injuries. The men were known to police. Due to the nature of their injuries and their answers to the police, they were both arrested in connection to the shooting at Foreplay Nightclub. All three men arrested in connection to the foreplay shooting were all known to the police gang task force. When police were asked if the two incidents were connected, meaning Travis's murder and the nightclub shooting, they said, quote, In view of the similar vehicle descriptions, we can't rule out a connection. Forensic tests are being done on evidence found at both scenes to check for a link, but they take time. However, to this day, these men have not been charged in connection to the murder of Travis Cope. When Travis's name was released to the media, the news shocked the small town of Tofield. Many people had positive memories of Travis and were shocked to hear that he had been murdered in a drive-by shooting in Edmonton. A week after Travis's murder, his funeral was held at the Tofield Gospel Church. 200 people attended the funeral in a town of just 2,000 people. The pastor stated, we are a community in shock. People are seeking consolation and answers, and there's anger too. 
anger that a young person at the very beginning of adulthood can be deliberately deprived of his life. Travis's aunt delivered a eulogy stating, Trav's bright smile, warm hugs, and big heart touch so many lives, thus leaving a piece of him with everyone that will remain with us forever. Grief-stricken classmates also attended with one mourner stating, You always hear of the stuff happening in Edmonton, but when it hits someone you know, it's sad. Police investigators also attended the funeral using cameras to record who attended in hope of finding a suspect. So while the investigation commenced, Lorraine and her family did their best to fill in some blanks. They went through their interactions with Travis to see if they could uncover details that would help the investigation. Lorraine recalls one night in Edmonton. It was Saturday, October 13th, and the family met Travis to celebrate Lorraine's birthday at a Red Lobster. She recalls that there were three guys wearing toques, sitting in a booth, kind of kitty corner from where they were sitting. Lorraine's husband felt like they were watching their table, and specifically Travis. To this day, she doesn't know if it's connected or not, but she does remember that moment and feeling like it was kind of odd. This was the last day that she saw her son alive, keeping in mind that Travis would be murdered just a few days later. The investigation into Travis's murder looked promising at first. There were eyewitnesses, shell casings at the scene, and there was a possible second shooting scene, and there were three people in custody, all known to the gang unit. Edmonton Police Service conducted 26 interviews and tasks into this inquiry. But the murder rate in Edmonton was experiencing a growth period, with just 19 murders in the year 2000, and then in 2002 there were 27 murders, including Travis. This would skyrocket to 44 murders by 2005. Many of these homicides were related to gang activity and the drug trade. It's unclear how or why, but the investigation into Travis's murder began to slow down. No one was arrested. No charges were filed. The foreplay shooting and those connected to it slowly fell from the headlines. The Edmonton police were very confident who committed Travis's murder, but were unable to secure sufficient evidence to bring charges to the Crown. And then sadly, months turned into years, and then decades, with no arrests or answers. Edmonton Police Service stopped releasing information into Travis's murder, and his case has faded away. So Lorraine and her family have been tasked with trying to find answers on their own. They have heard numerous rumors. They've heard that Travis was about to testify against someone. They have heard that he was set up to take the fall for a large theft of drugs. They have heard that he was targeted by rivals. And they have even heard that he was possibly targeted and set up by his own friends. For Lorraine and her family, they want to know why Travis was summoned to Edmonton. He was in contact with his girlfriend and his ex-girlfriend, and one of them was insisting that he come to Edmonton that night. For the family, this has always been suspicious. They've also wondered why did Travis go out to his car at that exact moment? Did someone send him out to his car? Was Travis being set up from the moment that he left Tofield? How did the Escalade men know where Travis was at that exact moment? He did not live at that home. I mean, he stayed there from time to time. In fact, he wasn't really living anywhere at the time. So how did they know he was there? Investigators have cleared Travis's ex-girlfriend and the current girlfriend that he had at the time who were communicating with him leading up to his death. They have also completely cleared his good friend whose home he was killed in front of, and they believe that he had a high level of cooperation with the investigators. So with those closest to him cleared, and the Escalade men off into the wind, 
Where does this leave the family? Lorraine shares that with regards to the police investigation, she's not sure how to feel. She feels like Travis's case has been tossed by the wayside. She says that there's always a change of hands on the file, and she hardly ever talks to the same detective twice. They've called Travis's case a tasked case. From what we understand, this is a cold case that gets picked up from time to time. Investigators will look at it, walk through the details to see if there's a new way they can investigate, like new evidence or a new lead, change or change to the suspect list. All of the friends that Lorraine was in touch with for this podcast state that they haven't heard from the police in a very long time. She does feel that in the beginning, the detectives were amazing, and she really felt their empathy and their sympathy. The detectives would call and ask questions about this or that, and they were very caring. Lorraine says that a recent family liaison coordinator has been very helpful in her last phone conversation. Lorraine understands that with time, the investigation dissipates. There are no more leads and everything is hush-hush. There is still holdback evidence. But she wonders why they don't put some of these unsolved crimes on the news, have a segment on these cases once in a while. And you and I have said that a lot. We've said that news should always have like a missing person or an unsolved case at the end of their reporting during the night. It would just be a really big help to these families who feel like they don't have a lot of support. Yeah. On February 25th, 2020, Lorraine and her family members sat down with detectives with the Edmonton Police Service. Now, in that meeting, the investigators provided information on the case. They stated that previously, historical cases like this one were investigated in a detective's spare time away from their current cases. Now, this is obviously a terrible model for investigators because they're quite busy. However, in recent years, a team of four officers in Edmonton are now dedicated to historical files. This has also helped uh, to increase resources into these cases. So recently, an investigator did reevaluate Travis's case. All of the forensic evidence was looked at along with the lines of inquiry. And this, this was investigated by a seasoned investigator, and he found that the original investigation was solid. Now, having said that, with a lack of new evidence, the new investigation was left with only two lines of investigation. Number one, interview those who previously refused to talk to the police or cooperate with the police. And two, re-interview those that did talk to the original investigators and ask them if they remember anything new. And so what the investigators found was that the reluctant witnesses or the uncooperative people still did not want to cooperate and that the ones who were helpful still had no new information. So what the investigators have deduced by that is that there is a group of people who have information that could solve this crime, but they have not shared it. They are uncooperative they live in fear to this day of the people who committed Travis's murder. Another interesting thing that investigators stated during this interview um, and meeting with Lorraine and her family was that they know uh, who the perpetrators are. They believe strongly that they know who the perpetrators are. And they know that they're still alive. And they know that they are currently not incarcerated. But the evidence that they have right now will not result in a conviction. In that same interview, they, of course, did not tell Lorraine who the suspects are because of privacy concerns and the fact that they have not been charged with a crime. They did share, however, that they believe that Travis was not a part of any gang. However, his murder was connected to the drug trade. 
They posited that Travis was perhaps being monitored and followed during the time before his murder and that this was a planned hit. They could not offer a motive, but stated that in the world of the drug trade, the reasons for murder are varied and random. They did clarify that Travis was not scheduled to testify against anyone. However, he did have an upcoming court case that was a few months away, and this was related to drug charges, where he was to be the defendant. During some of the lines of inquiry, investigators did learn that Travis had stated to a few people that he owed a sum of money to people. While it was clear that Travis was attempting to leave the drug trade, it appears that this was a difficult task. During this meeting with police, Lorraine and her family were presented with an incredibly difficult possibility. The possibility that Travis's murder will remain unsolved. Investigators have good evidence in this case. However, it's largely circumstantial. What they desperately need is for the people who are holding back information to come forward. And this can definitely happen over time. People grow up, they have families, their morals change with time, and over time they learn that the people they fear, while dangerous, deserve to be held accountable for what they've done. Time and time again, investigators have solved cases when witnesses have left the criminal lifestyle. They're more inclined to share what they know when they see things from a new perspective. And when they share that information, they can often corroborate the existing evidence. This kind of information is exactly what the police and courts need to secure a conviction in a case like Travis's. So it's now been over 20 years since this incident, and we asked Travis's family members if they could help us to understand the impact that this has had on them. Travis's younger sister, who prefers to remain anonymous, shared with us that she believes that Travis's murder did not receive the same urgency to be solved as someone else due to the labels that he was given, such as gangster or drug dealer. She goes on to say that as upsetting as it is to be no closer to bringing him justice, she knows that it's not the fault of the investigators, but the fact that still no one who has information has talked and that's what her family needs. All she can hope for is that people involved may not have the same reach as they had before, all those many years ago, and that someone comes forward with new information. Losing Travis had a large impact on her. Even though she was only six years old when he died, for her, life eventually moved on. But it was never the same again. Nothing felt whole again. There was always something, uh, a piece that was missing in every memory, every celebration and family get-together knowing that there should have been another place set at the table, another present wrapped under the Christmas tree, another hug that she will never get. These are the things that are truly heartbreaking for Travis's sister. She goes on to say that it's the what-ifs and the realizations of what they are missing out on without him there that hurt the most. She imagines what life would have been like if Travis had had a family of his own. Travis's sister has her own young child now. And she wonders if maybe both her and Travis had children that maybe they'd be laughing and playing together. She feels that he would have been an amazing uncle because he was such a great big brother for her, always playing with her, making giant snow tunnels and that kind of stuff. She knows that he would have been standing up at the wedding she will soon have, smiling as she walks down the aisle. 
For Lorraine, the pain is that of a mother who has experienced an unspeakable loss. She says losing Travis is a very traumatic experience and nothing can ever prepare a mother for such a loss. Travis's sister was just six when Travis died. She was too young to really understand that we couldn't control the fact that we couldn't bring Travis home. Lorraine says that was the hardest of all. Trying to navigate her own grief and watching her daughter cry every day. She wanted Travis back, and that's all there was to it. Lorraine shared that their world was abruptly and forever changed. Travis's dreams for himself would never be. Lorraine's dreams for him are gone. Life lost its meaning and purpose. She wondered how she could ever be happy again. She feels that a part of her heart is missing, and her family lives with this trauma every day. Trying to maneuver through life with such a tragic loss has been very difficult. She holds on to some faith and hope that someone, after all this time, will come forward. Lorraine goes on to say, Travis's friends and family have been stolen from. Travis was stolen from all of our lives. We deserve answers, and he deserves some justice. He was just a young boy who got tangled up in something he really didn't know anything about. How could he ever have known that his death would have been a result of the choices he made? Thinking back... It felt like he was playing Russian roulette with his life without knowing it. We asked Lorraine and her family members how listeners of this podcast could help. His younger sister says, quote, You, the listener, can help by hugging your loved ones tighter, telling your loved ones how much you love them, picking up the phone to check in, or getting in the car for that visit. By not judging others who may lead a different life as you. We're all victims of our own circumstances, and we're all just trying to survive. And survival looks different for everyone. Also, if anyone has any tips or information, to please come forward to the police, as it is crucial to solving this case and bringing a little bit of peace for our family. Lorraine expressed similar thoughts. She states, As for this podcast's listeners, my family and I just want to throw it out there so no one forgets about Travis. We would like for anyone who hears this podcast to please, if you know anything, the smallest detail, maybe it could help solve this crime. Please, please reach out to the Edmonton City Police Service or Crime Stoppers. Please listen to this podcast and share it like crazy. Travis's story is not over until it's over. Someone knows something. This won't bring closure. But if nothing else, maybe some healing, justice for Travis, and give us some answers. Closure is a myth, I think. Nothing will ever bring him back. I am, however, very grateful that I know where my son is. He's in a little handcrafted western urn that sits on the mantle above the fireplace. I've been taking a handful of his ashes to the creeks or river that I've been hiking for the past couple of summers. I think he likes it there. In nature, water running, birds chirping, and the mountains are so beautiful. He loved it here when he was a kid and as a young adult. I have been listening to a lot of these crimes or missing persons podcasts, and the missing persons cases break my heart. It's so hard to imagine not knowing every second of every day where your child is. Are they alive? Have they passed away? That would be the hardest. No answers and no truth. The sadness I feel for these families is undeniable. Lorraine added, If anyone is going through anything similar, please reach out to True North True Crime. And please hug your loved ones a little tighter every day. Tell them that you love them. Everything can change in the blink of an eye. 
We absolutely agree with Lorraine. Please hug your loved ones. And if we can ever help you get the word out about a case, please don't hesitate to contact us. Travis Cope was just 21 years old when he was murdered. He grew up in rural Alberta for his whole life. But for just a short two years, he lived in a different world, the world of the drug trade. In the year that he was trying to get out of the trade, he was killed. This is unfair. In our world, people hear gang-related, drug-related, high-risk, or known to police, and it makes it easy for people to brush off the violence that happens. People may not agree with Travis's choices, and that's okay. But he didn't deserve to be executed. No one has the right to execute someone in Canada. People deserve the opportunity for redemption arcs. And sadly, Travis didn't get that opportunity. And the people that took his life, the people that took him away from his family, those people walk free today as murderers. If you were a part of this scene in Edmonton in 2002, you've probably grown out of it. You're most likely in your 40s, with a life, maybe a family. You got lucky. You were given a chance to grow and thrive. But you may be sitting on a piece of information that could help. Now is the time to tell your story. Travis's mom and his sisters deserve justice. Travis deserves justice. Do the right thing. If you have any information about the 2002 murder of Travis Cope, please call the Edmonton Police Service or to remain anonymous, call Crime Stoppers. We would like to thank Lorraine and her family and Travis's friends for helping us with this episode and for trusting us with Travis's story. Thank you for joining us for this episode of True North True Crime. We will be back soon with a new episode. So until then, stay safe, everyone. Stay safe. Stay safe.